Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah, a registered associate nutritionist and your favourite crazy bean. Full of Beans is on a mission to reduce eating disorder stigma and increase eating disorder awareness. Together, we will establish inspiring conversations with a range of individuals, including those with personal experience and their loved ones, as well as clinicians, researchers and charities who are all working to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Using my personal battle with atypical anorexia and body dysmorphia, as well as my Masters in Eating Disorders and Clinical Nutrition, we will together explore the experiences of like-minded individuals who are equally as passionate about sharing their stories to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Please note that this podcast discusses sensitive topics and should not be seen as a replacement for evidence-based therapy or treatment. Oh, before we start, how do I pronounce your surname? <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> uh, so try to think of it as ch, as in ch. Okay. And Kelly. Okay. Chikelly. Chikelly. Is that okay? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Today I am joined by Talia Chikelly, a registered dietitian and nutritionist who has her own private nutrition clinic as well as working part time in a private mental health hospital on a specialist eating disorder unit. Talia joins us today to discuss the role of an eating disorder dietitian, the importance of meal plans, and how to navigate the physical symptoms of an eating and how to navigate the physical symptoms of eating disorder recovery. Hello, Talia. (laughs) Hello, how are you, Hannah? I'm good. Apparently, I can't talk today. I'm really (laughs) struggling to get my words out. Yeah, Yeah. and I just just happened to giggle at that moment. (laughs) (laughs) I have to keep it all in now, otherwise there'll be random laughing, so people will know that I can't apparently talk today. Um, It's so nice to speak with you. We've spoken a bit on the phone before, but not actually, well, I mean, we're kind of face-to-face on Zoom. So it's really nice to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. Yeah, you're more than welcome. So I'm really excited to talk to you today about your clinic and the work that you do as a dietitian. Um, And I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you was um, how you got into working as an eating disorder dietitian. Yeah, absolutely. So I've worked as a dietitian for about nine years and six of those have been in the specialist area of eating disorders and disordered Mm -hmm. eating. So the first few years of my career was really just, you know, the bread and butter of dietetics. I worked in um, all all throughout my career. I've worked as a clinical dietitian um, and the first few years were in like aged care and rehabilitation. Um, but then I had an interest in working in paediatrics and I was really lucky to get a job in one of the largest teaching hospitals, paediatric hospitals in Sydney, in Australia, where I'm from. And on the very first day, my ward manager allocated me to the adolescent eating disorders unit. Mm-hmm. And up until that stage, I had had no interest in working in eating disorders, but I absolutely loved it. I loved just being able to work in the multidisciplinary team and with the parents. Um, And so that really kickstarted my interest in working in eating disorders. And then I was in that role for two years. And then after that, I found a few jobs. So I worked on an adult inpatient unit, part-time and then part-time at, and this is all in Sydney, at the Butterfly Foundation, which is, I guess, the Australian equivalent of BEAT. Okay. So it's an Australian eating disorders charity. 
and part-time in a community role as well. And I did that for another year before moving over to London, uh, working in yeah, a few locum roles and then falling into my current role. So working part-time on an inpatient uh, eating disorders unit in a private uh, mental health hospital, as you mentioned in the introduction, and then part-time freelance. So running my business and my clinic. So you're nice and busy. Yeah, I am, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and and how does it compare doing the sort of stuff that you do in your clinic compared to the inpatient? Because I imagine they're quite different clients, I would imagine, that you work with as well. Yeah, so it's really different um, stages of recovery. Um, so on the inpatient setting, you know, the the purpose of an inpatient admission is really um, for those that need more intensive treatment. So they might be um, more physically unwell or engaging in behaviours that are really impacting their physical and psychological health, Mm. um, really struggling with getting enough nutrition in. um, That's at a point that it is no longer able to be managed or if, and what I mean by that is that it's no longer uh, safe for the patient um, or client in the community when they just need that extra support. So the types of Uh, patients that I see at the hospital. Primarily it is for anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa um, and those that are underweight and needing to weight restore. Mm -hmm. But we we do have people who, you know, have other eating disorders or binge eating disorder that don't need to to weight restore, um, that just need that more intensive support to really establish a, a regular pattern of eating and to reduce the behaviors that they're engaging in. I imagine it's quite difficult the sort of does the treatment vary you know you said that the different stages of recovery Mm. is it more in the hospital more of like a trying to you know get people to I don't want this to sound the way that it's going to sound but it's sort of like ensuring that they follow that meal plan to get them up to a weight where they can then engage in like the psychology and stuff and then I'm just assuming here, but then in your in your clinic, is it more like working around like the emotions around food and why those sorts of things develop? Yeah, so I guess I in my clinic, I see a really wide range, I guess, in terms of presentation. So I, I do work with people who are underweight. I do work with people who are at healthy weights for them, uh, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, and also people that fit into that Ausfed category or that just have an unhealthy relationship with food and they don't have a clinically diagnosed eating disorder. So there are some people that I work with in my clinic who might actually benefit from more intensive treatment like a daycare or inpatient setting that might be on a waiting list or that they are actually able to make the change and progress in the outpatient setting which is something that we always you know prioritize Um, we want people to be able to recover as much as possible in the home setting and the home environment so I think it it can be both in terms of establishing meal plans that can happen in both the inpatient and outpatient setting but definitely in the inpatient setting um, more so it will be establishing the very early stages of a meal plan having the regular meals regular snacks and working up towards a meal plan that meets their nutritional goals because although most people are weight restoring not everyone is and it's important to note too that people 
you know, don't just have to be underweight to be weight restoring, that we do work with people who are at a clinically, you know, categorized BMI that would place them in healthy or or overweight or above categories that are weight suppressed and they still need to restore their weight back to what's healthy for them. Same as in the outpatient setting. So it's just establishing that regular pattern of eating. Um, And in the inpatient setting, we will do work on, um, you know, expanding variety and flexibility. We run social meal support groups where we take the patients out for supported meals, cafes and restaurants, which is a part of the job that I absolutely love. Um, But you are, you are right in saying that there is um, to a certain point, it is different for everyone, but we know that there is a certain point in terms of weight restoration that we can see a huge difference in someone's uh, psychological health and being able to engage Mm -hmm. in the group program and the, the psychology input from their therapy team. Mm-hmm. I think I just want to go back to something you said I really mm-hmm. liked the fact that you mentioned about the fact that you don't have to be underweight to then need mm-hmm. to weight restore I think mm-hmm. there's quite a big stigma maybe attached that you know if you're at a healthy weight then you don't need to gain any weight during your recovery because mm-hmm. you are a healthy weight anyway but just because it's labeled necessary as a healthy weight on the BMI chart doesn't mean that it's your healthy weight so I, I think it's fantastic that you recognize that and I'm sure for the client that you work with that's a that's a really refreshing thing to hear yeah I mean I hope so at the time I think that it is probably hard to hear but I just through my experience you know working in this area for about six years now the more that I've learned about you know weight stigma and you know internalized fat stigma as well is that it is so important to to be honest with clients who are recovering and on their recovery journey and be really open and honest that, you know, the BMI is not something that can be used on an individual basis. And I think it's really important that treatment teams share that knowledge with patients and clients because I know that I think especially in, in the past and maybe, um, you know, there's still some some health professionals that are maybe not upskilled in the area or GPs who may not be, you know, have that mental health training that do use the BMI as a very set sort of criteria mm. when they're trying to guide someone back to health and return of you know full health, um, which can really hold someone back from making full recovery. Yeah, absolutely. And just as, I guess, a query, you know, because obviously a lot of doctors or whatever do use the BMI mm. scale as, you know, that it was for your height is your healthy weight. How would you determine what someone's healthy weight is it just that you want to get them to a point where they're not restrictive with their eating and then wherever they fall, that's their healthy weight? Or do you have like other determinants of how you recognize that? Yeah, so that's a really great question. So f- so in eating disorders, I, I do agree that their BMI is needed for some people and it is clinically indicated at certain stages of recovery. Um, so especially when we are working with people who are severely underweight, so... You know, I'm talking about people who have very, very low BMIs that are at medically, medically they're at risk um, and medically compromised. So we do use BMI criteria at the lower end to guide mm-hmm. someone's weight restoration. And normally in practice, what we would do is we would assess someone's individual history. So we go right back through children, adolescence, what was their weight history for females and males? When did they hit puberty? What was their weight like at that time? When they finished growing 
finding out about their weight history then and then into adulthood. So we use that as a guide as well. That's particularly useful if someone developed their eating disorder or started um, to lose weight as an adult because we know that if they had a really healthy relationship with food and exercise in their body, they would have settled at a healthy weight for them prior to the eating disorder. So we can use that as a gauge of, well, if that was healthy for you then, that's what we should be working um, Mm. to go back towards. Um, So, yeah, it's a combination of of, um, someone's history, uh, looking at when physical parameters started to, I guess, reduce. So even looking at someone's um, cognitive function, any other sort of um, parameters like their bloods, you know, blood pressure, heart rate, period stopping or returning. So looking at those sort of physical signs that the body says, hey, I'm not at a weight that's healthy for me when things Mm. start to shut down. But usually... When we, when we look at using something like BMI, we look at the lower end of the healthy weight range as being a minimum of 20. Now, that surprises a lot of people because mm. on the NHS, it is still recorded at BMI of 18 and a half. But we know that there are only, and this is in practice and in research, that there are only a handful of people that through eating disorder recovery will naturally fall at that lower range because in order to stay at a BMI of 18 and a half, 19 for most people, they're still having to engage in unhealthy behaviours um, you know, in terms of their diet and other compensatory behaviours. So we usually say a minimum BMI of 20 uh, and then you can start to explore intuitive eating and challenging your food rules and beliefs and that's where what you said came in you know, the settling weight for someone is a weight where they're no longer engaging in restrictive eating and compensatory behaviours. So using, you know, in my practice, I use that BMI to sort of guide when we can start to, um, you know, come off a meal plan, start to be more intuitive, um, and then just see what happens. And it's all about learning to trust your body again. Mm. Yeah, that's fantastic. I I actually did a talk yesterday about uh, nutrition in eating disorders, and I didn't, you know, I wanted to go on and be like, I wanted to give them what they wanted to hear but actually I think that that you've just said the key message it's learning to trust your body um and there is no one size fits all I want to ask you a question and if it puts you on the spot like just don't worry but if somebody's listening and they're very much like well the BMI is like you know it's completely true and everything and I need to be a certain BMI Mm. why maybe is BMI not as accurate as we might believe yeah Good question. So the BMI was created back in the 1800s by a mathematician. And it was even back then, um, he said it was never intended to be used on an individual basis. And then it Mm. was not used in research until about the 1940s, when the World Health Organization picked it up. But why it's also, you know, when you think about it, with a really open minded view, we have just two bits of data that we feed into a BMI, weight and height. Mm. So it doesn't account for our genetics. It doesn't account for our gender. It doesn't account for our age, our physical activity status, our body composition. These are all things that are so important when we think about someone's body weight and shape because the number one thing driving someone's body weight and shape is genetics. So we can't possibly use weight and height only to determine health because BMI is not an indicator of health just like a number on a scale is not a determinant of of health 
either. We have to look at the whole person and mm. the whole picture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thank you so yeah. much for giving such yeah. a... That was such a excellent answer and I was hoping that you were going to say something like that not just say oh I don't know uh so thank you the other thing that I wanted to ask you which you kind of spoke about earlier which is what you do with clients is um meal plans during eating disorder recovery I think we can all sit here and say obviously they're very important but I think sometimes when you're in the depth of an eating disorder it can be very difficult to stick to it or sort of know the importance of it so from your perspective as a dietitian why is a meal plan so important during that recovery Mm. stage yeah so in my experience most people will benefit from some sort of meal plan in the early stages. Again, it depends on the type of eating disorder and and the the stage of their illness. Um, And when I say meal plan, I don't mean this is what you... So in an inpatient setting, we have a very structured meal plan, which Mm -hmm. is this is what you eat, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and all of your snacks, which is pre-selected usually a week in advance in most hospital settings. In the outpatient setting, so in my my clinic, for example, a meal plan doesn't look like that for most people. A meal plan is more so a template of what to eat in a day. So it's a guideline of portion sizes and the types of foods Mm. that is recommended to, to have. So meal plans are really important because when we look at normalizing someone's relationship with food, It is in almost like a a three-phase approach is how I like to view it. So the first phase is ensuring that someone is eating regular meals and snacks and receiving adequate amounts of energy to meet their nutrition goals. So that's phase one, and that's really where a meal plan can be helpful in guiding someone to know what regular meals and adequate meals and snacks look like. The second phase, we're looking at adding variety and flexibility into someone's Mm. eating. So that's where you might start to move away from a meal plan slightly or start to add fear foods and challenge food rules and things like that, eating out, eating socially. And then the third phase is intuitive eating. So where meal plans can be really helpful is because often when someone has an eating disorder, their their view of what normal eating is is extremely skewed because Mm. of the restrictive diet, black and white mindset. So a meal plan is so important because it really helps to reestablish that idea of what normal eating is um, and ensuring that someone has enough food because we can't trust hunger and fullness cues in the early stages of eating disorder recovery. So something has to be there. And in the early stages, it often does have to be quite prescriptive um, because we can't trust hunger and fullness cues. We can't, you know... I, It'd be very rare for me to to meet someone and they agree to me adding juice or cake or biscuits um, into their diet. That needs to that needs to be a prescriptive part of someone's treatment plan because these are the the foods that are so often feared mm-hmm. in those early stages of eating disorder recovery. Yeah. Yeah, I I think I completely agree with you. I think it just gives that structure. And Mm. I really like what you said as well about the whole, you know, you're not able to recognise your hunger and fullness cues. And that's, that's something that I've always sort of considered about intuitive eating is... It's a fantastic concept, but I think sometimes people maybe start to do it too early um, in their eating disorder recovery when they're not necessarily ready to... I guess know what their body needs so having that prescriptive meal plan I think is a really Mm. good idea 
And I guess the question would be, you know, I think it's difficult when you do have a meal plan because sometimes, you know, it might be, okay, you need to have a snack now, but you're not necessarily, you don't feel like you are hungry. And then there can be quite a lot of intrusive thoughts. So how would you guide somebody through that in terms of making sure that they do stick to that meal plan and they don't get very upset about what thoughts are going on in their head? Yeah, so it's really important in terms of educating someone as to why the meal plan is there, which is of what we covered earlier and the importance of not being able to trust those hunger and fullness cues so mm. initially because a lot of the bodily uh, systems are suppressed due to being in a nutritionally deprived state hunger and fullness hormones the amount of enzymes that are needed for digestion all of these things aren't aren't there so we can't trust hunger and fullness so it's really important to to reinforce that to someone that you do have to eat to time initially and you will have to eat when you are full and one of the most common side effects that are reported to me is constipation fullness and bloating and we have to think about why that might be and that also impacts on the amount of food that someone feels comfortable with so early satiety or gastroparesis so that extreme feeling of fullness only after eating a small volume of food if we left someone to eat according to their hunger when they're experiencing these gastrointestinal symptoms we just wouldn't be able to get adequate nutrition in so Mm. really important to remind people that due to being in a malnourished state their digestive system is going to be impacted negative negatively and they're going to experience these symptoms and they're probably some of the hardest symptoms to overcome because it's it's almost cruel and i say this to the people that i work with it's really cruel because you're working so hard to recover and yet your body is sending signals that it's in pain and it doesn't want to eat Mm -hmm. anymore and you have to challenge that every single day but unfortunately the number one thing to help to reverse those side effects is to nourish the gut again and to weight restore so that your gut function can return to normal. Yeah. So I think it's, yeah, it's, it's reminding people of the importance of having that structure and in terms of feelings of, of guilt and shame and lack of control that might be experienced, one thing that I try to get all of my clients to do is to start to reframe the thoughts that they're experiencing um, and really trying to externalize the eating disorder self because any change in weight or increase in dietary intake is going to be seen as bad from the eating disorder self. But we know that healthy self, so this is again, so externalizing the two, separating the eating disorder self and healthy self, healthy self knows that weight restoration is required, that nourishing your body is required in order to get the life back that you, you know, you may previously been living. So to be able to go back to school or study, to be able to eat with, you know, socially with friends without feelings of guilt, to be more comfortable um, and more accepting of, of their body, you know, you need the, the nutrition to be able to engage in, you know, that form of, of therapy and be able to do that work. Um, So definitely reframing thoughts and challenging that black and white mindset of good and bad foods Mm. um, and replacing like moral values of food with something else. So if eating disorder self, you know, tries to feed that that narrative or feed that lie that a food is bad or will make you fat or gain weight, really learning to challenge it. And it's really hard at the beginning Um, some people say, you know, it's it's impossible to do Talia. I can't do it, but it it does come with practice. 
um, is starting to think about food in a different way. So thinking about what value does that food have. So carbohydrates, for example, instead of thinking this food will make me fat, trying to reframe that to carbohydrates are an incredible source of energy and fiber, and the fiber is going to help, you know, my gut health or, um, you know, carbohydrates are part of a balanced diet and, you know, I'm allowed to eat cake and I deserve to eat cake at social events, you know, just Mm. any sort of like reframe that is meaningful for that person. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think that's like really important. And, um, just like speaking anecdotally when I was going through my recovery I'd often have those sorts of thoughts of you know you don't deserve that or whatever Mm. and I found it so useful I mean people probably thought I was a bit cuckoo but I just used to say it out loud and saying it Mm. out loud I was like wait I wouldn't say that to anybody else in my life so why am I saying it to myself um and also just like I think when you say it when it's in your head it seems rational and then you say it out loud and you're like that's actually so irrational um and you know I do deserve all these things and that's absolutely fine um and why is it when we're going through recovery because I know a lot of people complain of like IBS symptoms Mm. um you know like bloating and stuff like that why is that why does that happen Yeah. So as I mentioned, it's one of the most commonly reported symptoms. So there was actually um, a study that looked at uh, people in anorexia, a recovery from anorexia nervosa uh, done in America, and 95% of people reported gastrointestinal symptoms. Uh So it is so common. And the reason why that is, I guess, is um, one of the main reasons is that when you are restricting your body of the energy that it needs your metabolism starts to slow down Mm -hmm. and what that means is that pretty much every body function every system in the body will receive a little bit less energy than what it needs to function optimally so it's as if you've got a rechargeable battery and it's running at you know 60 or 70 percent so if we're trying to um you know run a calculator for example the the numbers on the screen might dim Mm-hmm. Yeah, that might be one way to try to think about it. Um, so things aren't, aren't working optimally. And that one of those things is your gut health. So any the, the body tries to conserve energy in any way possible. So if it can spare X number of calories that are taken away from gut health to try and just keep all the vital functions... Um, running, then it's going to do that because the body, the primitive brain doesn't see digestion as being a um, a, a bodily system that you need for survival. Mm-hmm. So it, it takes energy away from that. So mm-hmm. just the, the gut having less energy means that those muscles are going to become weaker. When people are following a restrictive diet as well, if they're not giving their body enough fuel and carbohydrates, the body will start to break down muscles in the arms, legs, and organs, and use that protein for energy. So there's there's two things there that are happening, and that leaves the muscles being very weak, losing tone, um, and those side effects being experienced. So the um, constipation, bloating, abdominal pain, really slow digestion. Some people do experience diarrhea as well, because the other thing that's happening, if the body's drawing away energy from the digestive system, the hormones that are used for digestion aren't being, there's not enough of them being made. And also the enzymes that break down our food 
there's mm. not enough of them being made. So people actually end up with intolerances to certain foods because the, the gastrointestinal tract just cannot break the food down properly. So you end up with a bit of malabsorption in mm. a way and an intolerance to some foods. So IBS-type symptoms are so common. Um, most of these will be able to reverse with adequate nutrition and weight restoration, though in my experience some people can, can have long-lasting IBS-type symptoms really depending on how, I guess, malnourished the gut was and the impact that the restriction had on it long term. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think when, often when we're in the depths of an eating disorder, you don't think mm -hmm. about the long-term implications. And yeah. one thing that sprung to my mind immediately when you were talking about like enzymes and stuff like that was lactase. And mm. I know a lot of people... Um, you know, once they are recovered from an eating disorder or during recovery, that I can't have dairy because I get really bad IBS. Um, is, in your opinion, is that something that should be challenged? And if people want to start having dairy, is that something that, you know, could potentially come back and they could then have dairy? Or is it a sort of, you know, that that's an intolerance you've now got? So we, so I always start off with if someone can have dairy, that is my number one preference, just mm -hmm. in terms of the nutritional quality that you get of, course. of, of dairy foods. Um, but I do find that a lot of people are um, lactose intolerant when they are in the early stages of recovery. Now, it's really individual. So some people will be able to continue having lactose containing dairy and be okay and we have be able to manage the symptoms practically um, with you know practical strategies um, others they might need a period of lactose free but it's also really important to note that a, a lactose intolerance does not mean that you can't have any dairy foods and often in eating disorders people will or the eating disorder will use that as a form of restriction so it is really important to challenge and often what I do in, in the hospital and in my clinic is that I might do sort of a combination um, if having, you know, just dairy foods wasn't, hasn't been working. So I might switch to a lactose-free milk, but then keep yogurt and cheese in the diet. Mm -hmm. Really important to try lactose-free products before switching to plant-based because I know mm -hmm. people will just sort of jump to that plant-based alternative straight away. Um, so yeah, it, it is really individual, but I think absolutely it is so important to re-challenge dairy in the future um, because for the majority of people that will revert back to normal once the gut is functioning well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think also it's it's just another restriction that you put on yourself, which in my personal opinion, I think you should try and have as little restriction as possible, as, as difficult and uncomfortable as it's gonna be. Just breaking down every single rule possible is so important to then, you know, you don't want anything holding you back. Um, another sort of dietary requirement kind of thing that I wanted to ask you about was veganism and vegetarianism, because I think I know a lot of people um, especially being vegan um, during eating disorder recovery and it's I think it's a really difficult one to navigate because a lot of people will say it's for the environment or it's for the animals and you know you can't really argue with that if, if somebody's doing it for for that reason 
I guess I've got two questions. One, what's your opinion of it during recovery? And I now can't remember the second question. <laughs> so we'll, we'll go with what's we'll your opinion of it during We'll go for we'll the first question. First. Yeah. <laughs> so as you said, it is a really difficult area to navigate as an eating disorder dietitian because more and more people who don't have eating disorders are becoming vegetarian and vegan for ethical and sustainability reasons. And in eating disorder recovery, it can be very difficult to separate the ethical decision to follow a vegan diet versus the eating disorder recovery, uh, eating disorder restriction that's been placed as a, a way to restrict dietary intake. So it is something that I always challenge. And in my assessment, when I'm you know, trying to work out what sort of a plan to put people on, it's really important to consider the, the history. So the length of time that someone has been following a vegan or vegetarian diet, because if it's something that's new or coincided with the eating disorder starting, then we know that most likely it is going to be an eating disorder driven decision to restrict food groups. Um, so that's just one thing to, to think about. And the other is thinking about can this, you know, recovery, it, you know, it, it is possible on a vegan diet, but it, it is harder because you have to eat a higher volume of foods. And we know that when uh, poor digestion is one of the most common side effects, having a vegan diet is a very high fiber diet because the protein sources are generally high in fiber. And it can be extremely uncomfortable and really hard to get the amount of energy in that someone needs um, to restore their health. So it's also, um, yeah, looking at someone's individual choices and if they're able to um, actually meet the treatment goals um, following whichever, whichever diet they are suggesting that they need to follow. But personally, I very much challenge uh, any... Uh, vegan labels Um, and when you think about veganism too true veganism isn't just about food it is about it's a a lifestyle choice so Mm -hmm. is is that person just choosing not to eat animal products are they actually implementing veganism in other areas of their life into skincare clothing range because that's another way to try and separate is it eating disorder driven or is it for ethical and sustainability reasons Mm, yeah and that that was the other question that I had for you was what would be your advice if somebody is vegan and they think it's Mm. solely driven um you know they do think it's because of the environment but actually it might be and I think that's such a good point because like you say being vegan is a lifestyle there's so many things that you have to consider and I guess that would be quite an easy thing to spot if somebody's just doing it so that you know they when they go to a social occasion there's no food on offer for them so Mm. then they can't eat um if whether it's that or they're actually like doing all the different aspects of being vegan I think that's such a good idea um to recognize yeah Yeah, and I think it's really important too to think about how um you know there are a lot more vegan options now but it can be limiting in terms of 100% overcoming any food rules that you have if you're following a vegan diet and so often what I talk to people about is that you know can we put the vegan diet on hold for Mm. the next short while while we focus on recovery and improving your relationship with food 
And then once you you have a healthier relationship with food in your body, you can then make the decision as to whether you would like to follow a vegetarian or vegan diet again. Because I'm a huge advocate of not placing a label on how we eat. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you do mostly follow a vegan or vegetarian or pescatarian or whichever diet you choose to follow, unless it's for medical reasons in terms of allergies or diabetes or, or you know, anything like that, I just think it, it really, it starts to create food rules. It starts mm-hmm. to create some black and white thinking and labels around how you eat and what sort of food choices you have. And I think that part of having a healthy relationship with food is being able to be as spontaneous and flexible as you can be. And so if you're eating out, if you're traveling, if you go over to a friend's or family's house and they're not able to cater for your dietary preferences, which aren't medically needed, then I think it's really important in life to be able to have some flexibility around that. And I always use the example of, you know, if you go over a a family member's house and it's someone elderly and they offer you a cup of tea and they don't have arm milk are you going to say no because I think mm-hmm. that you know we connect over these sorts of occasions and I, to me that's more important than having such a rule-bound food label uh, mm-hmm. I just don't think that that's healthy for for most people yeah I love that that's such a nice thought about would you define that because I think most people wouldn't um Mm -hmm. well obviously depending on your mindset but I also thought it was a really good point you made about the food rules because you know if you are following a vegan diet there's going to be so many things that you can't have and Mm. you know that doesn't then let you have that chance to navigate whether it's actually something that you are fearful of or whether it's actually just you know it doesn't follow um the sort of diet that you're that you are wanting to have that lifestyle and then the the final one that I wanted to ask you about which I think is quite a difficult one um to navigate because and I want to talk about gluten because obviously for people with celiac that you know that is literally you cannot have gluten whatsoever um and that you know that's really difficult I would imagine like thing to navigate especially like you on social occasions and stuff like that Mm. but then obviously people can have gluten intolerances is that something that's quite common um during eating disorder recovery yes I don't see it as commonly as lactose intolerance I mean I see it as being a uh eating disorder driven (laughs) restriction Mm -hmm. yeah restriction um not a medically needed restrictive yeah uh, dietary restriction Mm -hmm. so rightly so if you are celiac then of course you need to follow a gluten-free diet if you are not celiac and because we know that so many people experience IBS symptoms we know that some things like uh, gluten or other sort of common trigger foods like onion for example or Mm -hmm. beans might upset someone's gut and there a lot of people are driven or which is scary have been recommended to go on something like the low FODMAP diet to manage their IBS symptoms which the number of people I've seen who have gone on to a low FODMAP diet and then eating disorder has spiraled is is, yeah quite scary Um, so it's really important not to go on any further elimination diets if you have an eating disorder or history of disordered eating and you have been recommended the low FODMAP diet, please do not do it on your own. It shouldn't be done alone uh, in, in general. So really important for anyone who's listening to 
to know that to please go and uh, seek support from a gut health specialist. But for because of those IBS type symptoms, we know that they're a result of being undernourished. For most people, having an undernourished gut, what the, the general guidelines are is to actually manage the symptoms during those initial uh, re- stages of refeeding and weight restoration. See if improving the nutritional status of the gut actually helps um, to imp- reverse the intolerance. And only then, if you've tried everything else, would you recommend potentially looking into something like a, a low FODMAP diet to test if things like gluten intolerance are uh, a real intolerance mm-hmm. or not? Yeah, I think that's so important what you said about, I was going to say about the FOD, low FODMAP diet um, because I think I've I've heard so many people say I'm going to try it because you know Mm. I really struggle um when I have different types of food and that gives me a load of wind and I get really bloated and like you say it's just it's ridiculously dangerous if you're not Mm. doing it under supervision because it is so restrictive um and it you know it's it's so many food rules and I think that's one thing for I mean especially anorexia rules and rigidity around food are are what anorexia thrives off so like you say it can be so dangerous yeah absolutely and also really important to note too that you know i've seen people that have been on a low fodmap diet for about two years it is just meant to be six to eight weeks and that is it no no longer so for anyone listening if you are or know of someone that's following a low fodmap diet for more than that length of time then it's really important to to go and seek support to reintroduce foods back into your diet because it is so restrictive and you can miss out on a lot of key nutrients. And we know the number one important thing for gut health is plant-based variety. And a lot of FODMAP foods are plants, so you're just not Mm -hmm. nourishing your gut when you're on a a low FODMAP diet um, for longer than what's recommended. And I think that's often what surprises people. It's, you know, often people that um, engage in these sorts of behaviours will, you know, lean towards the fruits and the vegetables as like their main constituents of their diet. And then they learn about the low FODMAP diet and think, oh, you know, that's another restrictive thing. And then it's like, mm-hmm. what, I can't have most of the things I've been having because they they are, they have the elements that I'm meant to be cutting out. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that's a really important thing to note. Um, so thank you so much for chatting with me today. I feel like I've learned so much. This has been such an evidence-based podcast. I feel like it's been, I've loved listening to everything you've said. Um, so thank you for bringing all the science and everything because that is I, I love a bit of science. Um, <laughs> You're the, welcome. The last question that I've been asking um, all the guests that come on to the podcast, um, and it's a very, very broad question, so I do apologise, but if, if someone's listening and um, they you know, are thinking, I'd really like to get onto the path of recovery, but I'm not sure how, what would be your top tip or best advice for someone to find that motivation? Speak to someone. I think that often eating disorders are so isolating and recovery can seem like it can seem like you are the only person in the world that is going through recovery. So I think speak to someone and make connections. And there are some incredible recovery communities out there now. And I think just knowing that you're not alone and having the support from friends and family can make the world of difference because part of eating disorder recovery is 
opening your life back to all the joys and experiences which often come about with social connections mm-hmm. um so that would be probably my number one tip yeah perfect well thank you so much talia i have really like i said i've really enjoyed chatting with you today you're welcome thank you so much for having me I enjoyed that episode with Talia so much. I think understanding the science behind our body when we're in recovery is so important because we can then understand why things are happening in our body and the process and to know that it's not forever. I also love that we went into detail with different dietary choices during eating disorder recovery and the considerations that you need to make. Next week, we'll be joined by Jess Griffiths, who is the clinical lead at BEAT. This was a really exciting conversation for me, speaking to the UK's largest charity. And we also touched on Jess's personal experience of having an eating disorder and how she likes to be open and honest in order to help other people who are struggling with their eating disorder. Drives that perfectionism. So if I was to put it out there and say, oh, I never struggle, that's not fair on everyone I'm I'm supporting. You know, what I just try and be real. I know in a sense I've got nothing to hide, you know, but... I think it is helpful to hear that to struggle is normal. And and I think, like I say, as a mum, I'm conscious of what I model to them mm-hmm. and they need to see the reality of life and how to navigate those emotions and those various different challenges. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode. So be sure to subscribe to be one of the first to hear it. Please also like, comment and share this podcast with anyone you feel that may need support at the moment. Not only those struggling with eating disorders, but also their loved ones, as this can be a very difficult time for everyone. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses and this podcast aims to motivate and inspire individuals along their path of recovery. If you are struggling with an eating disorder, charities like Beat, Seed and First Steps have great resources. Please also reach out to your local GP to see how you can gain support for your eating disorder. See you next time. Bye!